Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Rachel Everard talks to Ian Percy, OBE, a four-time Olympian, three-time Olympic medalist and double Olympic champion. Passionate about protecting the oceans, Ian founded Artibus Technologies in 2017 with a mission to see how technology could play a part in the decarbonisation of the maritime industry. Ian, hi, thank you and welcome to this podcast series focused on how we travel. It's an honour to have the chance to speak with a four-time Olympian, I must admit. (laughs) No, I don't know about that. We will be concentrating today on your work at Artemis Technologies, but I would like to start with understanding where your love of the sea and sailing came from and what inspired you. I first learned to sail when I think I was about seven, eight years old, and we, we were, um, me and my family were based in Southampton on the south coast of England. and. Back in the 80s, it was a pretty popular sport um, in the UK. Lots of people building little wooden boats in their garage and learning how to sail. And, and I went on a course on the Isle of Wight, a little island off the south coast of England, and um, just loved it straight away. I think I think as a kid, it was rare to have that kind of sense of freedom, being allowed to do what you like. And suddenly when you're in a little sailing boat and you're on your own, you can go anywhere. But then I guess as I've got older, that sense of freedom of the sea has has really stuck with me and, and grown in different ways. And I I kind of see the sea as such a connector of everything. And as a sailor, you kind of know you could get in a little boat and go anywhere. I still read books back of Discovery three, 500 years ago when that was still possible and uh, and still really see the sea as that, as that freedom and that connector. So very passionate about it, kind of think it's an important you know, critical part of our world from an environmental standpoint. And also for me personally, something that's really important. Funnily enough, I grew up in Southampton and my dad taught me to sail on the Solent, um, but I never became an Olympian. So he obviously missed a trick. I think that's one of the good things with sailing though, because all my brothers and sisters sailed and some of them were competitive, some of them weren't. It's a cool sport like that. And certainly I'm not that competitive now either, but still really enjoy it. I think that's the bit that never left me, the fact that the sea connects everywhere. Whereas when you're racing, all you care about is beating the person next to you. But that's kind of gone as I've got older and I appreciate the sea for different reasons. I think many people are kind of drawn to the sea, aren't they? I don't live close enough to the sea right now. And I make my husband take a pilgrimage to the beach every couple of months just to stand and look at it. Do you think it's that love of the sea that inspired you to look at how to protect it, particularly on kind of climate change? Yes. I mean, I I finished my last major competition back in 2017. It was quite good timing in a way because, well, good timing for my thoughts on this, not good timing for the world that we were, there was a lot of announcements about quite how bad maritime was for the environment. And at the same time, I was sailing a boat that was incredibly efficient using just the wind going at 50 odd, 60 miles an hour in a sailing boat. You know, there was this kind of realization we're doing something pretty wrong where we're able to sail around using no energy at all, but my puny arms turning some things and achieve these amazing speeds. What are we doing wrong where the maritime was was putting their hands up, to be fair, and saying we are polluting terribly? You know, we, we have sailed under the radar um, from a regulatory point of view. There is not much regulation worldwide, and it was just there's something wrong here. 
I can't be on this boat on the water that I love and not try and do something using the technologies that we developed in, in racing. And that inspiration, I suppose, or that epiphany led you in turn to create Artemis Technologies? Exactly. So 2017, my son was born. That was also obviously, as anyone who's got kids knows, is, is, is a super important moment as well. and makes you think a lot about the future and and, and, and what they're going to be at your age and beyond. And, and so that was also really important to me. And that all happened at the same time. First thought for me was we can scale up. We've got a boat here that had five people on it, so not carrying much cargo at all, but was doing these incredible speeds. And we had a we had a real history in our racing of understanding digital models of what we're trying to achieve. It's a funny competition, the America's Cup. They change the rules every few years completely. So you could be in a car one week and motorbike the next almost would be the analogy. It, it's completely changes it. So it makes you have to live in a digital world of design for very, very long periods of time, probably more than any other sport or industry, maybe we've with the exception of your own with aerospace that would really embrace this as well, we were living in a digital model of these vessels. So it was quite akin to looking at a wide space of a problem and saying, where can we solve it? So the initial thought was scale up. And, and really, it was when the marriage of financial models with and, and business models with the physics of our sport, it became clear that Maybe the wing sail wasn't paying. We looked a lot at wing sails. We still, I still feel passionately as a place for wind propulsion in ships, but just couldn't see the payback time quick enough in the short run. And maybe slightly cynically, not many of our economic models included much worldwide action on regulation. Um, I didn't believe that would be that fast. So we were looking for solutions that worked in the short run for operators to make economic gain as well as environmental gain for everyone else. So we really left the cup with an inspiration to try and do something and a lot of kind of technical skills at looking at wide design spaces, wide digital models of physical objects and then married that with economics. It was a process that started with a desire to do something for myself and a load of great investors that we pulled together. So it was an inspiration to do something and then really a case of using expertise in digital twins and open-mindedness to look and find solutions and, and really ended up with some of the products we're doing now out of that. It does sound like some of your competitiveness from sport has transitioned over to business. Yes, but it's funny in sport. I never was one to particularly enjoy the actual hard end of the competition bit. Um, I really enjoyed the process, got on with my competitors, but the actual bit at the end is not always a part of your character you like to bring up. The final bit of competition is very combative and, and you are against other people. And uh, that last little bit of competition was probably the bit I didn't enjoy as much. Uh, you know, the, But the process... Is very similar and really enjoyable and definitely driven by a desire to make correct decisions to validate the work that you and your team have all put in. Competitive sport is great because it gives you that. It says, yes, that was correct. You know, you, you, you won or you didn't win and you weren't correct. But the actual bit of competition is not always the bit itself that I enjoyed. I remember even as a kid when you'd come up, you know, you'd drive into the local competition with your boat on the back. It wasn't the bit I enjoyed knowing that I was about to kind of come head to head with the people you needed to beat. I know some people relish that, but I enjoyed getting to that point. And then the competition at the end was just the, uh, the marking of your homework. I'm really interested in how you've come from a competitive background, but sustainability is inherently non-competitive. And we are working in collaboration to try and protect our planet and our oceans. How have you transitioned into that environment? 
I think it was a bit like you're saying that it's the collaboration bit I always really enjoyed in sport when you're working with your team to achieve something. And you're absolutely right. You have to work with people outside your team and you have to do that in sport too, but but much more so in the environmental side. I see it that in the sustainability actions that we're all taking, we, we have to work collectively. And in fact, I think almost the biggest barrier is how hard it is to work internationally, multinational in the sense that we're all working to generally country rules. It's how it's been set up over over the last you know, thousand odd years. And um, we're also working on an economic system, which is driven and, and most of the reward networks that we work to are financially driven. And so there's some pretty big momentum to overcome around setting regulation to take account of these negative effects of our actions. And there's also a lot of momentum behind country and nationalism in the sense of control our laws or whatever we were just talking about. Well, I think we all need to have the same laws around some certain aspects of the environment. Otherwise, it's a real challenge. And I think um, working collaboratively is absolutely vital. And um, I know you were in COP last week. These are steps forward, I think, somewhat symbolic, but so, so important because I don't see for industries like maritime or aerospace you're involved in, there is solutions unless countries work together. So collaboration is vitally important. And of course, like like aerospace, maritime emissions are currently precluded from the Paris Agreement at an international level. But since you started, after most in 2017, the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, has made some bold statements and commitments on decarbonizing the marine sector and working in collaboration. How important do you think those kind of statements are? I think they're absolutely massive. I mean, it, it's what got me involved in the first place was that statement back when I was finishing, Mike, it was the timely and um, it was that drive. It, it was a realization actually, because I didn't realize how bad maritime sector was, for want of another word, bad, I, I think, but a polluting until that announcement from the IMO. So it was that announcement made a huge difference to me. I think more importantly than the difference to me, I think it's that um, you just can't do anything in an industry where you can fill up anywhere around the world um, just to keep it simple, unless you're acting collectively. We, we've concentrated on domestic maritime uh, emissions, which is about a third of the total worldwide problem. A, because our expertise was in high-speed maritime transportation. That was our background, high-speed, high maneuverability, complex kind of control systems on vessels. That was obviously our area of expertise, but it also was you know, I had a lot more assurance that working in the domestic markets had more of a chance because you know, these things can happen. You know, even, there can be early adopters of regulatory change. And we see that in Scandinavia, the UK too, looking at ways in which they can regulate the sector differently to enforce zero emissions and take account of those emission costs. So I think um, the IMO and their, their statements very important. I think the action is obviously more important. And I see a huge amount of desire within the maritime sector. It's super motivating to be part of it. I see people from huge cruise liners, tankers to high-speed domestic transportation like us all passionate about finding different solutions. There are different levels of complexity to the solutions. It's quite an exciting space. And I think um, people do see it as an opportunity as well as a challenge. And I think that's needed. It can't all be doomsday. If it's just doomsday, we need the regulation to move even faster than it is. But it's not just doomsday. You know, solutions like the Artemis e-foiler make economic sense today, regardless of a rule change. And I think looking for those solutions is important. Ian, you mentioned multiple solutions, and it's it's very clear that there's not a single solution that will solve all of maritime and the diversity of the maritime sector's carbon problem. 
similar as for aerospace where I've, I'm from. What is it that Artemis is bringing to the table in terms of technology? And I understand you're soon to launch a fleet of zero emission vessels. Our solution is for high-speed domestic transportation. So that would be your, your fast ferries, your port activities, wind farm um, transfer vessels, oil and gas transfer vessels, that kind of market where speed's important. Generally, as I said, our background was in speed. We, we knew we could make transformative difference to drag using a system developed in the America's Cup called hydrofoils, where very much like your world, in fact, we have wings under the water they lift the boat above the waves and, and dramatically reduce the drag. And that's an enabling technology that coupled then with electrification is able to achieve viable ranges and with range extenders from hydrogen or other hybrid solutions are able to achieve really good range simply by dropping the drag by 60, 70%. So really we focus there because whenever you can drop drag and power demand by 60, 70%, that generally can overcome the challenges of lack of regulation around emissions. And, and that proves to be the case, you know, in most duty cycles that are high mileage anyway, it makes real economic sense. But I think like a lot of the new technologies, it is a real investment capex against operational expenditure savings. And that's the real trade-off we face. I think a lot of the stuff in aerospace, a lot of people are facing this big upfront engineering and development costs, and then even product costs versus an increase in efficiency. And um, in maritime, we were forced down that route because practically you're at sea, you, you, you can't fill up very easily. You need long range or a, a reasonable range in an applications like ferries, you need it at high speed or, you know, you may as well walk. So you're forced into kind of high efficiency solutions, which is good for the environment. That's the positive, but the, the downsides the, is the higher upfront cost. But for us, it's high speed domestic transportation with these boats that fly above the water and, and dramatically reduce the drag. And as I said, domestic transportation in maritimes a third of the emissions, which is was surprising to me. And it's a good place to start because it's a place that can make economic sense and, and in a way can be a controlled environment from a regulatory standpoint. You mentioned very briefly there autonomous shipping. What role do you see that playing in a more sustainable shipping future? I really only see it as an enabler um, in a lot of ways. I mean, one of the things people don't realize is that ships have had an autopilot, just like aircraft have for about 50 years. Being, you know, directional autonomy at the sea in some ways has always been a lot easier than, as, as is, is in the air, has been a lot easier than on the roads because it's a lot, there's a lot more space out there in the ocean. So the concept of autopilots and taking you from A to B is not new in maritime, absolutely not. We've had waypoints for years. I think where we use autonomy a lot is where the technologies reduce emissions dramatically. In our case, the hydrofoiling wings, we um, can't work with a human in the loop. The requirements for reaction time to changes in height over these waves is thousands of times a second. And you need to be able to react using the actuators to control the flight accurately. You have to have autonomous systems. So for us, that um, the kind of closed loop sensor react on an actuator, sensor react to an actuator type systems are required for our technology to work. We could also do that with the steering, which is much easier. And as we all do it as humans, doesn't require such fast reaction times. Um, but it's not necessary for us to, in our mind, it's not necessarily the motivation. The motivation is to have big drag reducing systems to allow viable range for zero emission solutions. And we need autonomy in some aspects of that. So we have to have autonomy in some aspects. Other bits like a captain of a ship, we don't have to have. You know, we're actually very happy to have that management on board. 
you mentioned very briefly earlier, and a word that stuck out to me was around digital twins. Um, and I can see the application of those in, in looking at what you're trying to do from a technology perspective. But can you just talk us through the role of digital capabilities and, and digitalization in supporting the technology gains that you're pursuing? I really believe the use of digital physical models and, and coupling them with real world models and digital kind of models of cities or economic systems is vitally important. I mean, I studied economics and mass, and then I went on to do this sport sailing with the America's Cup. And as I said, the sport changed every single few years. It changed dramatically and it forced, and, and you're only ever allowed to build one boat or you only have had time really to build one boat or two at best. And so it, you really had to take your design to a much higher level of fidelity in a digital world so you could explore what is suddenly a really large design space quickly enough. So it's absolutely inherent in what we do on the physics side and on the physical system side. But what's interesting is winning in a sport sounds really easy. It's just about being faster. But actually, in a sport like sailing, it's not. Actually, what winning is and what you're trying to optimize your digital models for is equally complex. And actually, the interesting bit, because it's where it gets very collaborative, you're trying to define digital models of things that include human decision-making and dealing with pressure and, and, in a sport. And, and that's where I find a lot of analogies where we have physical digital twins and we have some prototypes and we're, we're, we're improving in a loop those, those, those models for experimentation and validation. But we also need to put it in the context of a real-world economic case and a real-world decision-making of an operator or someone going out as a sea captain. So I think that's really where I find the, the digital twinning very interesting. I think, I think as someone who's come from my background, it's an attitude of trying to be systematic, trying to have, be evidence-based, trying to feedback knowledge into a held system at all times, always trying to capture what you learn in a digital sense and therefore not lose it. So very much more an attitude than a thing itself. You mentioned very briefly there the need to consider these in real world applications in terms of the economic model, but also the operating model. What role do you think governments around the world can play or policymakers, perhaps not even specifically governments, but can play in, in enabling some of those technologies to come to fruition? A lot of different levels. I mean, ultimately, there needs to be some recognition in either regulation, fiscal systems that take account of the real costs. I mean, I think that's school economics of merit and demerit goods. You've got to at some point take account of the real costs, and that's not obviously generally done in economic systems that systematically or accurately. I think there's obviously much more sophisticated ways government can get involved through the financing side. They can also be involved, as you say, through regulation. And I think that's always a difficult problem because I understand what you don't want to do is decimate industries that are needed overnight by just saying everything has to be a zero emissions you know, vessel. That if there's no solution, then that would obviously could bring economies and more to the point kind of systems of society down. So you, you can't do that. So I think government do really well when they're staying abreast of the technologies and they can adjust more slightly more granularity. You know, you could do trial areas where you could use zero emissions transportation, for example, around oil and gas delivery, for example. The big players there have stated their desire to have all their operations. You know, that's uh, they've, they've put their hands up wanting that. So there's classic ways where you, government could enforce that with part of their planning permission rules, etc. So I think there's lots of sophisticated levers. I think the, the challenge 
whenever you need such joined up solutions then is how you're organized across lots of different government departments. And I think that's getting better and better. And it's getting better because everyone's really caring, I think. Certainly from Aviation World, where I've come from, we've seen the benefit of Jet Zero here in the UK in terms of bringing together those different government departments to consider how we can decarbonize aviation. Maybe we need a boat zero alternative for Maritime. <laughs> I'm curious just to unpick your original training as an economist. Um, and we've seen some examples of companies taking things like environmental profit and loss reporting, triple bottom line, um, and certainly coming from a large company like myself, we're seeing increased expectations on how we account for climate and environmental impact in our reporting. How do you think that we can scale that down so that all organizations are motivated? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, ultimately, and you see this a lot, don't you? You see desire from the top and it doesn't always cause action throughout organizations or countries. I see it that we do have this kind of momentum of thousands of years of an economic system based purely on financial return and a governmental system based on country. So I think that's, you know, there's a lot of momentum against it. And I think it's really, you're right, it's what's really encouraging is that it's actually individuals in their own lives and individual companies that are kind of bottom up making change without necessarily the structures of auditing or financial systems or economic or political systems being in place yet to force it. There is still drive. I think there's a few challenges with it going across the board. Often the bigger the company, the more successful the company is, the more margin there is. And I know my partner works as a director of sustainability in, in her business, which is a medium-sized business. And it's always that challenge where the desire is there, but the answer back is, well, when have I got time to do this? You know, what are you talking about? I, I, don't do, I can't do my job if I monitor. So it's about efficiency, of course, of systems. And you know, she works very hard in, in her business to make sure that everything is can be done for minimal effort as possible but they're not easy the thing with economic monitoring and auditing it's you know it's got a common denomination it's quite simple and i think obviously doing auditing of impact is much much more nuanced much easier to manipulate hence there's bad press around greenwashing so it's a much more complex problem than economic auditing that's for sure but um I think ultimately, unless there is a system from the governments down that comes up with a consistent way of doing things that incentivize that effort, there will be adoption from large companies that have the finances and the and the time to do that and the and the responsibility. There, there will be you know small companies that are very passionate, but it won't be across the board enough unless there's common methods that are enforced. But that is also challenging. I mean, imagine if a government said that everyone had to very genuinely report on their total emissions. I mean, as you know, it's a huge amount of work. And if a lot of small businesses were suddenly having to do that, I could see their economic model suddenly doesn't work. So it's also about making it efficient. And I think I hear maybe a bit in the question, there is that role for, for best practice being filtered down from some from larger companies. But that's happened a lot in other areas, like physics aspects, and, and quite often, especially in something like this, they're not that compatible. So it's not so easy to just pass down that best practice. I do think it's a difficult problem. I think governments are going to have to enforce some kind of reporting um, at some point. Yeah, I think it comes back to that point you made earlier about collaboration across all sectors and all parties within a sector. It's going to be absolutely key. Yeah, there's no shortage of private endeavour trying to come out with systems to help and support. So I do think there's a hope that when the demand is there, which as I said, there often is from the top down for decent measuring to therefore do proper change and, and eventually 
if need be, the odd aspect of offset, although there's obviously uh, mixed benefits there. But in terms of measuring, I think it's something that's so, so critical, like you said, you're doing there in roles. And I think there is no shortage of private companies making themselves available. The challenge is it's just difficult. And so whether you're a contractor with experience in that sector as a contractor measurer of emissions or not, every business is different. It is quite complex and um, therefore expensive. And so it, it's a cost. You know, there's there's no shortage of growth in that sector, and it's a hugely interesting sector as well. It's no because it's so complicated. So I think we I think it might solve itself from the private sector up, but it then needs to be enforced when all the solutions are in place. I just want to for our final question. I'm afraid we're almost out of time, but just. Take a step back and, and consider that both the America's Cup and the Expo were founded in the same year in 1851, I understand. And I can only imagine the levels of innovation we've seen over the last 170 years. But Ian, I'm really interested in what innovation will you think we'll see in the future and what your vision for marine transport is in the next 30, 50 years. So the America's Cup was actually part of the original Expo. UK were trying to promote their maritime prowess by racing an American that had come over and smashing them with the race around the Isle of Wight. And then unfortunately, uh, they lost to the American. <laughs> and that was then, then the America's Cup stayed in the US for a good hundred odd years more. So there's a good lesson there about showing off too much. For sure, in maritime, there's been huge developments. But if the, the irony is, I think potentially in maritime, just like we've seen in, in energy, um, it, there will be a full circle in maritime and we will return eventually to sailing um, and using the wind that I care about when we're doing longer journeys. I think shorter journeys and at high speed, the, the wind is a little bit less efficient because as you would know from driving a car or an aeroplane, you put your head out the window, the wind's pretty much in your face when you're going at that speed. So it doesn't work so well. The apparent winds get very fine angled. But in the ocean, when we can afford to go slower, I think um, we'll see a return to using natural resources at source. And we are in the sea, be it eventually hydrogen converted from seawater, coupling with aspects of wind propulsion. Maritime's got every chance to be fully zero emissions because it was zero emissions for about 10,000 years. So I think it was done quite successfully for a long, long time. So I hold every hope that with man's ingenuity, we'll be able to return to being zero emissions at sea. Ian, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear your experiences and perspectives coming from a non-competitive Olympian with a, with a passion for the, the sea and seeing how you've then applied that into creating a, a fantastic cutting edge and innovative zero carbon business. So absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.